0: Chapter 6 of France and England in North America, Part 3 La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. La Salle, Discovery of the Great West, by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter six sixteen seventy three to sixteen seventy eight. La Salle and Frontenac. Objects of La Salle. Frontenac favors him. Projects of Frontenac. CARTAQUI Frontenac on Lake Ontario. Fort Frontenac. La Salle and Fenion. Success of La Salle. His enemies. We turn from the humble Marquette thanking God with his last breath that he died for his order and his faith. And by our side stands the masculine form of Cavier de La Salle. Prodigious was the contrast between the two discoverers. The one with clasped hands and upturned eyes seems a figure evoked from some dim legend of medieval saintship. The other, with feet firm planted on the hard earth, Breathe the self-relying energies of modern practical enterprise. Nevertheless, La Salle's enemies called him a visionary. His projects perplexed and startled them. At first, they ridiculed him, and then, as step by step he advanced toward his purpose, they denounced and maligned him. What was this purpose? It was not of sudden growth, but developed as years went on la salle at la chenay dreamed of a western passage to china and nursed vague schemes of western discovery then when his earlier journeyings revealed to him the valley of the ohio and the fertile plains of the illinois his imagination took wing over the boundless prairies and forests drained by the great river of the west his ambition had found its field he would leave barren and frozen canada behind AND LEAD FRANCE AND CIVILIZATION INTO THE VALLEY OF THE MISSISSIPPI. NEITHER THE ENGLISH NOR THE JESUITS SHOULD CONQUER THAT RICH DOMAIN. THE ONE MUST REST CONTENT WITH THE COUNTRY EAST OF THE ALLEGHANIES, AND THE OTHER WITH THE FORESTS, SAVAGES, AND BEAVER-SKINS OF THE NORTHERN LAKES. IT WAS FOR HIM TO CALL INTO LIGHT THE LATENT RICHES OF THE GREAT WEST. BUT THE WAY TO HIS LAND OF PROMISE WAS ROUGH AND LONG. It laid through Canada, filled with hostile traders and hostile priests, and barred by ice for half the year. The difficulty was soon solved. La Salle became convinced that the Mississippi flowed not into the Pacific or the Gulf of California, but into the Gulf of Mexico. By a fortified post at its mouth, he could guard it against both English and Spaniards, and secure for the trade of the interior an access and an outlet. Under his own control and open at every season. Of this trade, the hides of the buffalo would at first form the staple and, along with furs, would reward the enterprise till other resources should be developed. Such were the vast projects that unfolded themselves in the mind of La Salle. Canada must needs be at the outset his base of action, and without the support of its authorities, he could do nothing. This support he found. From the moment when count Frontenac assumed the government of the colony. He seems to have looked with favor on the young discoverer There were points of likeness between the two men Both were ardent bold and enterprising the irascible and fiery proud of the noble found its match in the reserved and seemingly cold pride of the ambitious burgher. Each could comprehend the other and they had moreover strong prejudices and dislikes in common an understanding, not to say an alliance, soon grew up between them. Frontenac had come to Canada a ruined man. He was ostentatious, lavish, and in no way disposed to let slip an opportunity of mending his fortune. He presently thought that he had found a plan by which he could serve both the colony and himself. His predecessor, Corsell, had urged upon the king the expediency of building a fort on Lake Ontario in order to hold the iroquois in check and intercept the trade which the tribes of the upper lakes had begun to carry on with the dutch and english of new york thus a stream of wealth would be turned into canada which would otherwise enrich her enemies here to all appearance was a great public good and from the military point of view it was so in fact but it was clear that the trade thus secured might be made to profit not the colony at large but those alone who had control of the fort, which would then become the instrument of a monopoly. Thus the governor understood, and without doubt he meant that the projected establishment should pay him tribute. How far he and La Salle were acting in concurrence at this time, it is not easy to say, but Frontenac often took counsel of the explorer, who, on his part, saw in the design a possible first step towards the accomplishment. Of his own far-reaching schemes, such of the Canadian merchants as were not in the governor's confidence looked on his plan with extreme distrust. Frontenac therefore thought it expedient to make use, as he expresses it, of address. He gave out merely that he intended to make a tour through the upper parts of the colony with an armed force in order to inspire the indians with respect and secure a solid peace he had neither troops money munitions nor means of transportation yet there was no time to lose for should he delay the execution of his plan it might be countermanded by the king his only resource therefore was in a prompt and hearty exertion of the royal authority and he issued an order requiring the inhabitants of quebec montreal three rivers and other settlements to furnish him at their own cost as soon as the spring sowing should be over with a certain number of armed men besides the requisite canoes At the same time he invited the officers settled in the country to join the expedition an Invitation which anxious as they were to gain his good graces few of them cared to decline Regardless of murmurs and discontent he pushed his preparation vigorously and on the third of June left Quebec with his guard his staff a part of the garrison of the castle of St. Louis, and a number of volunteers. He had already sent to La Salle, who was then at Montreal, directing him to repair to Onondaga, the political center of the Iroquois, and invite their sachems to meet the governor in council at the Bay of Quinte, on the north of Lake Ontario. La Salle had set out on his mission, but first sent Frontenac a map, which convinced him that the best site for his proposed fort was the mouth of the cataraqui where kingston now stands another messenger was accordingly dispatched to change the rendezvous to this point meanwhile the governor proceeded at his leisure towards montreal stopping by the way to visit the officers settled along the bank who eager to pay their homage to the newly risen sun received him with a hospitality which under the roof of a log-hut was sometimes graced by the polished courtesies of the salon and the boudoir reaching montreal which he had never before seen he gazed we may suppose with some interest at the long row of humble dwellings which lined the bank the massive buildings of the seminary and the spire of the church predominant over all it was a rude scene but the greeting that awaited him savored nothing of the rough simplicity of the wilderness. Perrault, the local governor, was on the shore with his soldiers and the inhabitants, drawn up under arms and firing a salute to welcome the representative of the king. Frontenac was compelled to listen to a long harangue from the judge of the place, followed by another from the syndic. Then there was a solemn procession to the church, Where he was forced to undergo a third effort of oratory from one of the priests to followed in thanks for his arrival and then he took refuge in the fort here he remained thirteen days busied with his preparations organizing the militia soothing their mutual jealousies and settling naughty questions of rank and precedence during this time every means as he declares was used to prevent him from proceeding and among other devices a rumour was set on foot that a dutch fleet having just captured boston was on its way to attack quebec having sent men canoes and baggage by land to la salle's old settlement of la chenay frontenac himself followed on the twenty eighth of june including indians from the missions he now had with him about four hundred men and a hundred and twenty canoes Besides two large flatboats, which he caused to be painted in red and blue, with strange devices intended to dazzle the Iroquois by a display of unwonted splendor. Now their hard task began, shouldering canoes through the forest, dragging the flatboats along the shore, working like beavers, sometimes in water to the knees, sometimes up to the armpits, their feet cut by the sharp stones. And they themselves well nigh swept down by the furious current. They fought their way upward against the chain of mighty rapids that break the navigation of the st lawrence. The indians were of the greatest service. Frontenac, like La Salle, showed from the first a special faculty of managing them, for his keen incisive spirit was exactly to their liking, and they worked for him as they would have worked for no man else as they approached the long sioux rain fell in torrents and the governor without his cloak drenched to the skin directed in person the amphibious toil of his followers once it was said he lay awake all night in his anxiety lest the biscuit should be wet which would have ruined the expedition no such mischance took place and at length the last rapid was passed and smooth water awaited them to their journey's end soon they reached the thousand islands and their long flotilla glided in a long file among those watery labyrinths by rocky islets where some lonely pine towered like a mast against the sky by sun-scorched crags where the brown lichens crisped in the parching glare by deep dells shady and cool rich in rank ferns and spongy dark-green mosses by still coves where the water-lilies lay like snowflakes on their broad flat leaves till at length they neared their goal and the glistening bosom of lake ontario opened on their sight frontenac to impose respect on the iroquois now set his canoes in order of battle four divisions formed the first line Then came the two flatboats he himself with his guards his staff and the gentleman volunteers followed With the canoes of three rivers on his right and those of the Indians on his left While two remaining divisions formed a rear line Thus with measured paddles they advanced over the still lake till they saw a canoe approaching to meet them It bore several Iroquois chiefs who told them that the dignitaries of their nation awaited them at Cataraqui, and offered to guide them to the spot. They entered the wide mouth of the river, and passed along the shore, now covered by the quiet little city of Kingston, till they reached the point at present occupied by the barracks at the western end of Cataraqui Bridge. Here they stranded their canoes and disembarked, Baggage was landed fires lighted tents pitched and guards set Close at hand under the lee of the forest were the camping sheds of the Iroquois who had come to the rendezvous in considerable numbers At daybreak of the next morning the 13th of July The drums beat and the whole party were drawn up under arms a double line of men extended from the front of Frontenac's tent to the Indian camp and through the lane thus formed the savage deputies sixty in number advanced to the place of council they could not hide their admiration at the martial array of the french many of whom were old soldiers of the regiment of carinon and when they reached the tent they ejaculated their astonishment at the uniforms of the governor's guard who surrounded it here the ground had been carpeted with the sail of the flatboats on which the deputies squatted themselves in a ring and smoked their pipes for a time with their usual air of deliberate gravity, while Frontenac, who sat surrounded by his officers, had full leisure to contemplate the formidable adversaries whose mettle was hereafter to put his own to so severe a test. A chief named Garicante, a noted friend of the French, at length opened the council, in behalf of all the five Iroquois nations, with expressions of great respect and deference towards Onontio, that is to say, the governor of Canada, whereupon Frontenac, whose native arrogance where Indians were concerned, always took a form which imposed respect without exciting anger, replied in the following strain, Children, Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, and Senecas, I am glad to see you here where I have had a fire lighted for you to smoke by and for me to talk to you You have done well my children to obey the command of your father Take courage you will hear his word which is full of peace and tenderness for do not think that I have come for war My mind is full of peace and she walks by my side courage then children and take rest With that he gave them six fathoms of tobacco, reiterated his assurances of friendship, promised that he would be a kind father so long as they should be obedient children, regretted that he was forced to speak through an interpreter, and ended with a gift of guns to the men and prunes and raisins to their wives and children. Here closed this preliminary meeting, the great council being postponed to another day. During the meeting, Rodin, Frontenac's engineer was tracing out the lines of a fort, after a predetermined plan, and the whole party, under the direction of their officers, now set themselves to construct it. Some cut down trees, some dug the trenches, some hewed the palisades, and with such order and alacrity was the work urged on, that the Indians were lost in astonishment. Meanwhile, Frontenac spared no pains to make friends of the chiefs, some of whom he had constantly at his table he fondled the iroquois children and gave them bread and sweetmeats and in the evening feasted the squaws to make them dance the indians were delighted with these attentions and conceived a high opinion of the new onontio on the seventeenth when the construction of the fort was well advanced frontenac called the chiefs to a grand council which was held with all possible state and ceremony His dealing with the Indians on this and other occasions was truly admirable Unacquainted as he was with them. He seems to have had an instinctive perception of the treatment. They required His predecessors had never ventured to address the Iroquois as children But had always styled them brothers and yet the assumption of paternal authority on the part of Frontenac Was not only taken in good part, but was received with apparent gratitude the martial nature of the man his clear decisive speech and his frank and downright manner backed as they were by a display of force which in their eyes was formidable struck them with admiration and gave tenfold effect to his words of kindness they thanked him for that which from another they would not have endured frontenac began again by expressing his satisfaction that they had obeyed the commands of their father and come to Kataraqui to hear what he had to say. Then he exhorted them to embrace Christianity, and on this theme he dwelt at length, in words excellently adapted to produce the desired effect, words which it would be most superfluous to tax as insincere, though doubtless they lost nothing in emphasis because in this instance conscience and policy aimed alike. Then, changing his tone, he pointed to his officers, his guard the long files of the militia and the two flatboats mounted with cannon which lay in the river nearby If he said your father can come so far with so great a force through such dangerous rapids Merely to make you a visit of pleasure and friendship What would he do if you should awaken his anger and make it necessary for him to punish his disobedient children? He is the arbiter of peace and war Beware how you offend him and he warned them not to molest the Indian allies of the French Telling them sharply that he would chastise them for the least infraction of the peace From threats he passed to blandishments and urged them to confide in his paternal kindness Saying that in proof of his affection He was building a storehouse at Cataraqui where they could be supplied with all the goods they needed without the necessity of a long and dangerous journey. He warned them against listening to bad men, who might seek to delude them by misrepresentations and falsehoods, and he urged them to give heed to none but men of character, like the Sieur de La Salle. He expressed a hope that they would suffer their children to learn French from the missionaries, in order that they and his nephews, meaning the French colonists, might become one people. And he concluded by requesting them to give him a number of their children to be educated in the french manner at quebec This speech every clause of which was reinforced by abundant presents, was extremely well received Though one speaker reminded him that he had forgotten one important point Inasmuch as he had not told them at what prices they could obtain goods at Cotaraqui Frontenac evaded a precise answer But promised them that the goods should be as cheap as possible in view of the great difficulty of transportation As to the request concerning their children They said that they could not accede to it till they had talked the matter over in their villages But it is a striking proof of the influence which Frontenac had gained over them that in the following year They actually sent several of their children to Quebec to be educated the girls among the Ursulines And the boys in the household of the governor three days after the council the iroquois set out on their return and as the palisades of the fort were now finished and the barracks nearly so Frontenac began to send his party homeward by detachments he himself was detained for a time by the arrival of another band of iroquois from the villages on the north side of lake ontario he repeated to them the speech he had made to the others and this final meeting over, he embarked with his guard, leaving a sufficient number to hold the fort, which was to be provisioned for a year by means of a convoy then on its way up the river. Passing the rapids safely, he reached Montreal on the first of August. His enterprise had been a complete success. He had gained every point, and in spite of the dangerous navigation, had not lost a single canoe thanks to the enforced and gratuitous assistance of the inhabitants the whole had cost the king only about ten thousand francs which frontenac had advanced on his own credit though in a commercial point of view the new establishment was of very questionable benefit to the colony at large the governor had nevertheless conferred an inestimable blessing on all canada by the assurance he had gained of a long respite from the fearful scourge of the iroquois hostility Assuredly, he writes, I may boast of having impressed them at once with respect, fear, and goodwill. He adds that the fort at Cotaraqui, with the aid of a vessel now building, will command Lake Ontario, keep the peace with the Iroquois, and cut off the trade with the English. And he proceeds to say that by another fort at the mouth of the Niagara, and another vessel on Lake Erie, we, the French, can command all the upper lakes." this plan was an essential link in the schemes of la salle and we shall soon find him employed in executing it a curious incident occurred soon after the building of the fort on lake ontario frontenac on his way back quarrelled with perot the governor of montreal whom in view of his speculations in the fur trade he seems to have regarded as a rival in business but who by his folly and arrogance would have justified any reasonable measure of severity. Frontenac, however, was not reasonable. He arrested Perrault, threw him into prison, and set up a man of his own as governor in his place. And as the judge of Montreal was not in his interest, he removed him, and substituted another on whom he could rely. Thus, for a time, he had Montreal well in hand. The priests of the seminary, seigneurs of the island, regarded these arbitrary proceedings with extreme uneasiness they claimed the right of nominating their own governor and Perrault though he held a commission from the king owed his place to their appointment True he had set them at naught and proved a veritable king stork yet Nevertheless they regarded his removal as an infringement of their rights during the quarrel with Perrault La Salle chanced to be at Montreal lodged in the house of Jacques Lebert, who, though one of the principal merchants and most influential inhabitants of the settlement, was accustomed to sell goods across his counter in person to white men and Indians, his wife taking his place when he was absent. Such were the primitive manners of the scheduled little colony. Lebert at this time was in the interest of Frontenac and La Salle, though he afterwards became one of their most determined opponents amid the excitement and discussion occasioned by Perrault's arrest la salle declared himself an adherent of the governor and warned all persons against speaking ill of him in his hearing the Abbe fenelon already mentioned as half-brother to the famous archbishop had attempted to mediate between frontenac and Perrault, and to this end had made a journey to quebec on the ice in midwinter being of an ardent temperament and more courageous than prudent he had spoken somewhat indiscreetly and had been very roughly treated by the stormy and imperious count he returned to montreal greatly excited and not without cause it fell to his lot to preach the easter sermon the service was held in the little church of the hotel dieu which was crowded to the porch all the chief persons of the settlement being present the cure of the parish whose name also was perot said high mass assisted by la salle's brother cavalier and two other priests then fenelon mounted the pulpit certain passages of his sermon were obviously leveled against frontenac speaking of the duties of those clothed with temporal authority he said that the magistrate inspired with the spirit of christ was as ready to pardon offenses against himself as to punish those against his prince that he was full of respect for the ministers of the altar And never maltreated them when they attempted to reconcile enemies and restore peace that he never made favorites of those who flattered him nor under specious pretexts oppressed other persons in authority who opposed his enterprises that he used his power to serve his king and not to his own advantage that he remained content with his salary without disturbing the commerce of the country or abusing those who refused him a share in their profits and that he never troubled the people by inordinate and unjust levies of men and material using the name of his prince as a cover to his own designs la salle sat near the door but as the preacher proceeded he suddenly rose to his feet in such a manner as to attract the notice of the congregation as they turned their heads he signed to the principal persons among them and by his angry looks and gesticulation called their attention to the words of Fenelon. Then meeting the eye of the curé, who sat beside the altar, he made the same signs to him, to which the curé replied by a deprecating shrug of the shoulders. Fenelon changed colour, but continued his sermon. This indecent proceeding of La Salle, and the zeal with which throughout the quarrel he took the part of the governor, did not go unrewarded. Henceforth Frontenac was more than ever his friend and this plainly appeared in the disposition made through his influence of the new fort on lake ontario attempts had been made to induce the king to have it demolished but it was resolved at last that being built it should be allowed to stand and after long delay a final arrangement was made for its maintenance in the manner following in the autumn of sixteen seventy four la salle went to france with letters of strong recommendation from Frontenac. He was well received at court and he made two petitions to the king the one for a patent of nobility in consideration of his services as an explorer and the other for a grant in signory of fort frontenac for so he called the new post in honor of his patron on his part he offered to pay back the ten thousand francs which the fort had cost the king to maintain it at his own charge with a garrison equal to that of montreal Besides fifteen or twenty laborers, to form a French colony around it, to build a church whenever the number of inhabitants should reach one hundred, and meanwhile to support one or more of the recollets friars, and finally to form a settlement of domesticated Indians in the neighborhood. His offers were accepted. He was raised to the rank of the United Nobles, received a grant of the fort and lands adjacent. To the extent of four leagues in front and half a league in depth, besides the neighbouring islands, and was invested with the government of the fort and settlement, subject to the orders of the Governor-General. La Salle returned to Canada, proprietor of a signory which, all things considered, was one of the most valuable in the colony. His friends and his family, rejoicing in his good fortune, and not unwilling to share it, made him large advances of money enabling him to pay the stipulated sum to the king, to rebuild the fort in stone, maintain soldiers and laborers, and procure, in part at least, the necessary outfit. Had La Salle been a mere merchant, he was in a fair way to make a fortune, for he was in a position to control the better part of the Canadian fur trade. But he was not a mere merchant, and no commercial profit could content his ambition. Those may believe who will that Frontenac did not expect a share in the profits of the new post That he did expect it there is positive evidence for a deposition is extant Taken at the instance of his enemy the intendant Duchenneau in which three witnesses attest that the governor La Salle His lieutenant La Forest and one Boiseau had formed a partnership to carry on the trade of Fort Frontenac no sooner was la salle installed in his new post than the merchants of canada joined hands to oppose him laubert once his friend became his bitter enemy for he himself had hoped to share the monopoly of fort frontenac at which he and one Bazier had at first been placed provisionally in control and from which he now saw himself ejected la chasnay la moyne and others of more or less influence took part in the league which in fact embraced all the traders in the colony except the few joined with Frontenac and La Salle. Duchesneau, intendant of the colony, aided the malcontents. As time went on, their bitterness grew more bitter, and when at last it was seen that, not satisfied with the monopoly of Fort Frontenac, La Salle aimed at the control of the valleys of the Ohio and the Mississippi, and the usufruct of half a continent the ire of his opponents redoubled and canada became for him a nest of hornets buzzing in wrath and watching the moment to sting but there was another element of opposition less noisy but not less formidable and this arose from the jesuits frontenac hated them and they under befitting forms of duty and courtesy paid him back in the same coin having no love for the governor They would naturally have little for his partisan and protégé but their opposition had another and a deeper root for the plans of the daring young schemer jarred with their own we have seen the canadian jesuits in the early apostolic days of their mission when the flame of their zeal fed by an ardent hope burned bright and high this hope was doomed to disappointment their avowed purpose of building another Paraguay on the borders of the Great Lakes was never accomplished and their missions and their converts were swept away in an avalanche of ruin Still they would not despair from the lakes They turned their eyes to the Valley of the Mississippi in the hope to see it one day the seat of their new Empire of the faith But what did this new Paraguay mean? it meant a little nation of converted and domesticated savages docile as children under the paternal and absolute rule of jesuit fathers and trained by them in industrial pursuits the results of which were to inure not to the profit of the producers but to the building of the churches the founding of colleges the establishment of warehouses and magazines and the construction of works of defense all controlled by jesuits and forming a part of the vast possessions of the order such was the old Paraguay, and such we may suppose would have been the new had the plans of those who designed it been realized. I have said that since the middle of the century the religious exaltation of the early missions had sensibly declined. In the nature of things, that grand enthusiasm was too intense and fervent to be long sustained. But the vital force of Jesuitism had suffered no diminution. That marvellous esprit de corps that extinction of self and absorption of the individual in the order which has marked the Jesuits from their first existence as a body, was no whit changed or lessened, a principle which, though different, was no less strong than the self-devoted patriotism of Sparta, or the early Roman Republic, The Jesuits were no longer supreme in Canada, or, in other words, Canada was no longer simply a mission. It had become a colony, Temporal interests and the civil power were constantly gaining ground, and the disciples of Loyola felt that relatively, if not absolutely, they were losing it. They struggled vigorously to maintain the ascendancy of their order, or, as they would have expressed it, the ascendancy of religion. But in the older and more settled parts of the colony, it was clear that the day of their undivided rule was past therefore they looked with redoubled solicitude to their missions in the west they had been among its first explorers and they hoped that here the catholic faith as represented by jesuits might reign with undisputed sway in paraguay it was their constant aim to exclude white men from their missions it was the same in north america they dreaded fur traders partly because they interfered with their teachings and perverted their converts and partly for other reasons. But La Salle was a fur trader, and far worse than a fur trader, he aimed at occupation, fortification, and settlement. The scope and vigor of his enterprises, and the powerful influence that aided them, made him a stumbling block in their path. He was their most dangerous rival for the control of the West, and from first to last they set themselves against him. What manner of man was he who could conceive designs so vast and define enmities so many and so powerful? And in what spirit did he embrace these designs? We will look hereafter for an answer. End of chapter six. Recording by Lawrence Trask. Mount Vernon, Ohio. Interface audio dot